Welcome back, everybody, to the Classic Rock Podcast. And coming up in this edition, we've got every bass covered. We've got the rock, we've got the prog, and we've got the blues. Yes, this time round include Jeff Downs, who joins us to talk about his great friend and colleague, John Wetton, who is the subject of a fabulous 8-CD box set, which has just been released. It's called An Extraordinary Life. We're also going to be looking at to what Yes are going to be getting up to next year on their UK and European tour. Uh, Jim Sula, yeah, a lot of you will know him, who for the last few decades has been playing alongside George Thurgood and the Destroyers. 14 years ago, he and a bunch of very accomplished blues players and friends got together for a few days in New Jersey to record a batch of new songs. Now, the project was titled Texas Scratch. They did it, and then it ended up sitting on a shelf for, what, 13 years. And the whole story began to take on something of a mythical status with fans just wondering if it ever really existed. And if it did, when were they likely to hear it? Well, the answer is now because the dreams for those who've been waiting this long have finally come true. Texas Scratch is now out. And Jim joins me to talk about the album and his career. Anything else? Well, yes, as a matter of fact. As through the holidays, there's going to be a few surprises coming your way. Uh, Magnum are back with a brand new album this January. It is called Here Comes the Rain. And it's a continuation of this extraordinary run of form that they have been on. It's an eighth album since Escape from the Shadow Garden. And they just keep getting better and better with every release. And it seems that most people agree as well, don't they? Because they continue to chart and sell well with every new release. And on the next show, in between Christmas and New Year, we're going to be talking to Bob Catley about the album. And to get the show on the road, this is a taste of what you can expect. Coming up, we're going to be hearing Blue Tango. And in very quick succession from one of the best new bands out there, they're called Silver Roller. Some of you for sure will have known and seen them. Others of you may not. But if you love that 70s classic rock look and feel to your music, and this has been uh, one of the finds of the year, I think. Uh, I saw them live with uh, Jared James Nichols a couple of months back, and they were fantastic. Uh, the track you're going to hear is called Hold. It's their most recent release. And if you like what you hear, uh, then go and see them live because they really don't disappoint. They're going to be on tour in the early part of next year with another great live band called Devolve. Now, you may remember them uh, because we featured them. We did a, an interview with them backstage on that Jared James Nichols tour. And if you haven't seen it, if you go to the website, you can see it. Uh, so check out their Facebook page for all of the details. So let's get the show on the road. Here's Magnum.
Magnum, they just keep on delivering that finely crafted melodic rock without it once feeling like you've heard it all before. And Silver Roller, just underlining the fact that you can have your musical influences, uh, but it doesn't mean that you end up sounding like a pale imitation of the real thing. They may sound and have a feel of a 70s rock band, but it just feels fresh and modern and it leaves you actually feeling... You know what? Yeah, I want some more of that. So there you go. That is your rock intro. And just before we get to Jeff Downs, it's time to turn on to a bit of prog before we get there. <laughs> 
One of the other surprises in Storm coming up, Steve Hackett, who appears to me to be performing on a live stage somewhere pretty much in the world every day. Uh, he has surprised everybody with news of a brand new album. It's coming this February. It is called The Circus and the Night Well. It's out on February the 16th. And Steve is going to be joining us uh, sometime in January to talk about the album. And also on the release radar, a Mammoth 4 CD release from Rick Wakeman. It was recorded at the London Palladium earlier on this year, featuring the English Rock Ensemble and the English Chamber Choir. And it is coming your way on February the 16th, Varcherry Red as well. So if you are sitting comfortably, here are nine minutes of fine progressive rock from two of the genre's finest protagonists.
Well, it is the holiday season after all, so uh, what is wrong with a bit of self-indulgence? That was People of the Smoke from Steve Hackett and Catherine of Aragon from Rick Wakeman's upcoming live release, both out in February. Uh, Now, just before we get to Jeff Dance, quick mention about uh, some new content on the website uh, where you can find exclusive video interviews and features. Backstage Confidential is where you will find it. And you'll find, uh, as we said, interviews with some of the artists we've been to see over the last few months, either pre or post show. You will find the likes of Robert John and the Wreck, Philip Sace, Ken and Crisco, Devolf, Troy Redfern, Don Brewer, Roger Earl, Malcolm Bruce, and more. Uh, you can find it all on the website www.theclassicrockpodcast.com. Now, John Wetton had one of the finest and the most distinctive voices in British rock music. He sadly passed away a few years ago, back in 2017. But he left a body of work which is still a joy to listen to today. And this month came the arrival of a box set of his solo recordings, including uh, many rare and unheard tracks, all pulled together into a set titled An Extraordinary Life. Now, one of his great friends and colleagues over the last, what, four-plus decades was Jeff Dans, and I caught up with Jeff to talk about John and his career and to look forward to what's going to be happening with Yes in 2024. And to take us there, here's a track from John's box set. It is from 1980's Caught in the Crossfire, and you can clearly hear the, the seeds of this AOR and FM radio sound that was hitting the airwaves at the time. It's a, it's a great track. It's called Turn On The Radio.
2017, we lost one of the most talented vocalists the Shores have ever produced. Uh, there are many great vocalists we know, obviously, but there hasn't been anybody quite like John who had this unique ability to provide this emotive delivery, you know, the ability to convey very deep emotions with that unique voice. Is that a fair assessment? Yeah, I, I think John was completely original. You know, he had he had um, a very, very powerful top range, but also he had this deep uh, baritone range that he could pull on. Um, and he's one of the few vocalists, I think, that could be convincing in that top register as well as the bottom register. Um, but I mean, he, he was, um, it was a very, um, endearing voice, you know, it would draw, it would draw people in, and as you say, very emotion, emotive, um, voice, and, uh, you know, that is not just what John was, I mean, you know, in terms of, uh, you know, his abilities, was not just, um, his amazing vocal talent, but obviously, you know, he was a, uh, an iconic bass guitarist as well. Um, and uh, an incredible songwriter. So really, mm. uh, you know, for me, John John had it all. So I was very, very fortunate to be in a position where I got to work with him uh, for, you know, for a number of years. Your first meeting with him at Brian Lane's office, the, the Asia manager at the, at the time, what were your first impressions? Because you're coming from different backgrounds. Uh, so... What was it like when you first I met? I think initially we hit it off socially, and uh, and uh, and he said, "You know, did you fancy fancy a drink? Let's go to the pub." Uh, and that was the first time I met him. So, um, and his, <laughs> his girlfriend, who then became his wife, was working in the office at the time, and we we sloped off, and we really, you know, we really had a a good good rapport. And I think the fact that we both came from similar backgrounds, you know, we were brought up on church music and um uh you know we we were born outside of london so uh you know it was it was a, a a bonding really and i think that when we started to when when the formation of asia was finalized you know we had steve and carl uh i think that john and i felt very close bonds as as, as writers you know that because we as i say we we come from similar backgrounds and that was very mm. um uh, you know, we just hit it off straight away. John Kolodner, at the time, the, the new A&R whiz from, from Geffen, if he'd have had his way, Robert Fleischmann would have had a stay with Asia. He was with Journey for a very, a very short time. Uh, so I, I didn't know that. I only came across that not that long ago. So... What was it like at the time? I mean, was he just saying, listen, this is the guy for you? Well, and then you were saying, no, 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 no. I we, think, we, we think John yeah, is the I, man I think for Kalodna's us. I original idea was that, that this, 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 the super group was going to be along the lines of, yes, so it was going to be a five-piece. And so uh, Kalodna was throwing not not just Robert Fleischman, but uh, Trevor Rabin came over, um, uh, Roy Wood even, uh, so we we were looking at you know at that time oh yeah 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 we were looking at that time as a five piece and uh, and I think as time went by John became more and more the focal point and more and more the vocalist and then uh, in the end we turned around and said look you know we've got it here why are we why are we looking at outside and so uh, that was at the point then when we settled on a four piece uh, and and from that point on. 
you know, I think everyone was really comfortable with, with uh, certainly with John because he was uh, not only was he writing the songs, but he was singing them. And, and I think that you know, it, it's very difficult for a vocalist sometimes to be committed to music that um, that they've not been a part of writing. And I think that you know, certainly in John's case. Um, it was very much a, a story of the fact that it was a complete extension of him, you know. And so, uh, you know, it, it was very, very natural, I think, for the band to to say to John, "Well, you know, you're you're the guy that's been singing all through these rehearsals we've been having, and uh, you know, why, why don't we just stick with that?" And so that was it, you know. Once once we decided on that, it was it was you know, this is Asia, it's a four piece, and we're getting on with it. Uh, both you and John, as you just said, had grown up around uh, choral music. I mean, his brother was a was a choir master and a church organist, yeah. dad, and that played into these huge, emotionally charged choruses. Didn't it? And uh, it's not until you say that when you go back, as I did yesterday and the day before, I was going back listening to all all sorts of it again. Yeah, I remember being sat in church on a Sunday and I, I you know, you have these um, huge choruses and these these hymns and you can see where the crossover came. That's absolutely right. You know, I think that my dad was a church organist and I grew up singing in choirs. So it's all, it was almost in both of our DNAs. And I think that that's one of the reasons why, you know, John had not really had the opportunity, I think, in, uh, you know, in, in King Crimson or UK to manifest that sort of arrangement of vocal arrangements and I think when you know when we collided um, that's when we really started to think about these big anthemic choruses that were obviously influenced by by church music but um, and so I think with my my schooling at uh, you know when I, from music college with the actual notation and the arrangements of putting these these huge vocal blocks together uh, I think that John and I really worked very hard on saying, well, you know, this this is the line that, that you know, he's going to sing and then the next one and then maybe I'll do a top one on and, and we had Steve to do some of the lower uh, register stuff. So we had this this whole big block and, and it really, I think it, it actually influenced our songwriting as well because we wanted to go for those big choruses and I think that, um, you know, that's why we got this tag of being this, you know, arena rock type supergroup. Even though at that point we'd not, you know, we hadn't finished the album, we'd not released the album. But uh, I think that was one of the hallmarks of the success of Asia. Not so much. Um, I mean, we're obviously all talented instrumentalists. You know, Carl's drumming and Steve's uh, wild guitar playing, and uh, uh, you know, John's bass and my keyboards. You know, we had all that as well. But at the same time, I think that. John and I were very much focused on, on on getting the songs and the melodies across, and so uh, that's really how Asia formed. It was it had that you know it had the progressive rock players, but at the same time, um, it was it was a different it was a different outing for everybody. I think because you know, obviously Steve had been through the big thing in the seventies, as as had Carl and, and, and John to to. Uh, a great degree. I mean, not so much myself because, you know, at the, at the time those guys were touring America and doing all of that. I was, I was doing session work and 
playing jing writing jingles and that kind of thing. So I, I had a slightly different seventies background because I guess I was a <laughs> you know a couple of years younger than the other guys. But uh, I think that uh, John really saw me as his, 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 as a talisman in uh, in the whole thing and a catalyst to his what, what the way that he wanted to uh, approach music. Uh, the first track of, and I'll use a quote here, substance uh, that you, you put together was Soul Survivor. Now, there was an interesting little aside around that, and it says, while, you, while you're in composition mode, the pair of you, on in the background, you've got televisions, and you've got Morgan McEnroe in the Wimbledon yeah. uh, final going on in the background, and because you, you both love sport as well. That's right. I think that's another reason why why, why John and I got so close because we, we, we had very similar uh, tastes and stuff and, uh, you know, um, and we had a great sense of humour between us. So uh, the, the songwriting side of things was really, um, it, it was just a, a, an extra thing that we were doing. But I think that, I mean, we took it very seriously, of course, but uh, it was a very natural thing, and these things happen very quickly. So, you know, Soul Survivor, I think, well, you know, definitely was inspired by the, the TV being on in the, in the background, and, and we, I think, we were writing uh, maybe the, <laughs> uh, the verses at the time for, for Soul Survivor, and, and John came up with the, you know, with, with these great lyrics that uh, reflected, you know, what we was what we were experiencing at the time. Yeah, that was one of the, the great underappreciated talents that he had was his use of vocabulary, the use of words and bringing things together to create these poignant and emotionally uh, crafted songs. Do you think people give him enough credit for that or is, or should he be given more credit for that? Well, I think if you listen to, to a lot of John's lyrics, not just the ones off the first album but uh, or, the, or the second album, but... You know some of the latter lyrics um, when we did the reunion albums. I think you, you know, John was totally committed, and I think that you know w when you hear a vocalist that's so committed in their own presentation, it, it's it's uh, an infectious thing. You know, you can't get away from it. And uh, and I think there was a song uh, called "Holy War" off off the Omega album, uh, and he's talking about trebuchet yeah. and. Uh, yeah, you know things that you know you wouldn't. There's there's not your love story songs. You know these these are these are deep things that we you know go back to history and uh, you know John was very 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 good at that. You know I mean he was a, a keen crossword man. So uh, he used to do the uh, the Telegraph crossword every morning, and so um, a very educated man. And and, and I think that. You know, to be able to put words like that into, um, uh, you know, into a song and be convinced and convicted in, in the in, in the presentation of it, it's hard to avoid that because you just say, well, you know, I believe it. You know, um, whatever he's singing about, you're going to believe because it's so convincing and yeah, so, yeah, yeah. It has so much conviction, and that's one of John's greatest skills, which maybe some people you know did not really grasp i think at the time but i think when you reflect on the on, on the music that, that we, we wrote together uh you know it's you know it's um it's amazing what what john was capable of and certainly you know when i was going back to when we were talking about john's vocal range uh 
Um, there was a song also off that album called There Was A Time. And, you know, John starts with this really low, creamy baritone. And then, you know, the next verse, he goes up the octave and sings the same line with all power, you know. So that versatility is something that I think mm. sets him aside from many, many other vocalists that, uh, that um, you know, he was capable of pulling off virtually anything. When you completed that album, you and John have written six of the nine tracks, or on six of the nine tracks. John is on everybody, everyone rather, uh, including that bonus track that, that uh, appeared right away. Heat of the Moment, this was an interesting story. Heat of the Moment was the obviously the most iconic song almost of the, of the decade, I would have thought, but it was the last song to get on that. Was there ever a danger when you'd completed that song that you thought, no, we, we'll leave that one. <laughs> we won't bother. Was was there any danger of that ever happening, or was it that was yeah obviously going to be on? There? Um, I think that by the time we we were putting it together, I think that that um, originally the the lead off song was going to be "Only Time Will Tell," which you know was a uh, a, a powerful song in in a way. But I think that John John felt and and maybe. We were being pushed a little bit by by Kolodna as well that that maybe there was a, there was something else in the tank that we hadn't uh, we you know we was un, uh, undiscovered and so uh, John had this little idea that he said oh, I've got this little country song um, uh, and I said well that that sounds a bit weird you know um, he said yeah it's you know and it, it was in three four and it had a uh, it had this feel, but it was a chorus, you know, and it was the heat of the moment. And I said, well, that's great. I said, but, you know, maybe we need to straighten that out a bit. Maybe we need to, uh, you know, keep it more regular. And, and I think that um, when we were writing the verses, uh, I said to John, well, you know, this verse, is, it's not in a normal time signature because you've got the, 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 you've got the, the riff, you know, the guitar riff, and then you've got the... The sort of Phil Spector doom 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 baffing on the drums, so it was very much a case of um, you know well this is this is different you know and I think that uh, that we really worked hard on that because again you know with that great anthemic chorus coming in it's hard to run away from it and and so I remember at the time we'd we'd got the verses we'd got the choruses we were very very um, keen on the intro being that power guitar. And I think Steve was a little bit reluctant at first to, because it's not really his style, you know, that that, that was a bit of sort of, uh, I suppose, um, something that was a bit alien to him, you know, to play a power, power guitar um, intro like that. But I think we we pushed for it and pushed for it, and eventually Steve said, okay, I'll do it. On, and he did it on different guitars, and it, and it came out sounding brilliant. Um, so... Uh, when we when we had those we had those elements, but we didn't really have the middle section. And then I think John and I sat down one one afternoon, probably uh, watching sport again or something, and um, and we came up with the whole middle section with the uh, you know the, the R's and the, the the breakdowns and all that kind of stuff. So it was it was something that by the time we we went into the studio to do it. It had only written, been written maybe a couple of weeks before we actually went in the studio. Everything else was really heavily rehearsed. You know, we had, you know, Wildest Dreams and uh, uh, the 
the shuffle for the time again. So we had all of those really heavily rehearsed. I mean, a lot of people didn't give us credit at the time because they thought, oh, this band's just been put together on a, you know, on a, on a test bench, you know, with the, the big record executives, uh, you know, they've assembled this band, the, the super group kind of thing. But I mean, we didn't really, we didn't really see it like that because I think we felt that, uh, you know, we needed to get it really well together. And we rehearsed for, I think, up to about six months. So imagine that was at the time when we had some of these people mm. coming over to audition and, and, you know, about halfway through, that's when we decided, um, that's it, we're, we're done. You know, we've, we've got, we've got what we want here. So people don't really give us credit for that. You know, it was a lot of hard work. It was a lot of research went into it from, from our angle. Uh, so, uh, you know, when we went in the studio, we were, we were pretty well prepared for it. Uh, the record company bosses, the, the reaction uh, was, I, 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 you wonder what they were listening to. And the, the quote was uh, something like, quite honestly, we find the cover of the album a bit dark. Uh, the logo is ugly. And frankly, there are no singles on it. Yeah, that's the <laughs> You wonder whether or not they were suffering from tone deafness. Well, I think by the time, uh, you know, they, they had a, a good marketing campaign, um, and I'll give them that. But, you know, they they had no idea about how it was going to be received uh, because, of course, we were the first band on Geffen Records and they were a new label. So they didn't, they, they were just really, you know, getting, or Geffen was, getting his, uh, his his foot in the door, so to speak, in, in terms of his own label. Uh, and I think that when it first went out and it went out to the stations, the the response was so incredible. Uh, uh, you know, it went on 250 stations overnight, you know, and it wasn't just heat at the moment it was being played. It was all, you know, three or four tracks deep. Uh, so, you know, Soul Survivor was there, Only Time Would Tell, uh, Wildest Dreams, Time Again. You know, they were all on maximum rotation and, and, and rock radio. So I think that by that time, that's when they really started throwing, um, you know, throwing money at us or throwing money at the project as it was at the time. And, uh, uh, and, and of course, it just went, went, exploded and just went snowboard went up and up. I mean, I, I do remember that, I think I might have put this in the book, but I, I remember John and I were, 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 were driving somewhere in America and uh, uh, it was just after the album had come out and, um, and we, we were listening to one station and we had hit the moment and I said, oh, we'll just change that, we, we know that one, you know, and then we switched to another station and Wildest Dreams was on and another station, Soul Survivor, so and that's just in one city, so you can imagine <laughs> the level of, uh, of of excitement that we all had, and, and uh, the fact that the record label were were significantly excited by it, to say the least. And uh, uh, yeah, I mean, we 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 it was a good it was a good run. No, I wasn't that. I mean, you never know when, when you release an album, you don't know whether it's going to be commercially successful or not. And I certainly thought that we'd done it as well as we could, but I, I, I didn't have any, none of us had any idea about how, how successful it was going to be, certainly uh, in terms of its commercial value. But, you know, I think that um, 
we started off fairly uh, with the tour. We started off fairly mod modestly. I mean, I think it was sold largely on the, you know, on the. Uh, on yeah, it seems you were doing college halls. We're doing colleges, yeah, but it was sold largely on the the the, the people that were in the bands rather than, uh, you know, the, the the music at the time because the, before the album came out, the tour had already been booked. So, you know, I think that was more to do with the fact that. You know, Carl Palmer was still a big name. Steve was a big name. You know, John was a pretty big name. Uh, not so much myself, obviously, because you know, my my uh, although I'd been in Yes prior to that, <coughs> um, that that that's really how it was sold. Is this, this you know that this this band of of seventies musicians have come together and they've they've got something new to project. But of course, when the album started to kick in, and I mean, it was just flying up, flying up the charts, and being played everywhere, and became very much a, uh, you know, a, the young college students' album of the year in many ways. Uh, that's when, at that time, we did the first tour and we fulfilled all the college dates, and then, of course, you know, that, that's when the big guns came in and said, right. You know, we'll put this arena here, we'll put that one there, we'll put, you know, Philadelphia Spectrum, uh, you know, 20,000 people a night, Jones Beach Arena, 25,000 people, you know, uh, just went literally through the ceiling. So when we came out for the second leg of the tour, we'd elevated from playing, you know, 1,500, 2,000-seater college halls to... Uh, you know, into the arenas that were sold out uh, multiple dates. You know, I think we did one at uh, Detroit, which was five five nights in a row, and all sold out. You know, so uh, it was uh, a meteoric rise, if you like, um, for for Asia, particularly on that first tour. Lie! 
friends uh, with with John throughout the 80s. We, obviously, we know the, the story of the departure and, and whatever, but you both remain friends and you came back together again to work years later with, with Icon and, and then this paving the way for that, um, that Asia reunion. And I, I was thinking, actually, if you if you went back again and you had the the debut album, if you then just sort of airdropped what you produced on the reunion back to maybe after "Don't Cry," it would have been would have been fabulous. You, you, you'd have been up there for the decade, I would have thought, because those uh, albums you did on that reunion, uh, "Phoenix Omega," "Triple X," uh, "Gravitas," had had tracks on there was. There was stuff on there that was as good as anything that had come before, and I'm thinking about yeah, never again, uh, Valkyrie and um, Finger on the Trigger, Holy War. I mean, there was some incredible songs there. Yeah, I think that um, it, it's 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 hard to look back in hindsight, and and I think that you know the fact that Asia came together so quickly and was so successful so quickly. We didn't really have anywhere to go with it. You know, that first album was so huge. You know, it was the biggest selling album, uh, you know, in the world that year. You know, so you've got, uh, uh, it's um, it's very hard to know where to go from there. And I think that that was one of the things that, you know, had, had the progress been slower and we'd started lower down, you know, the scale, as it were, um, I think the longevity of the band would have been um, far greater, you know, because it, but as we started so high, there was only one way you can go. You know, if you're at the very top of the tree, there's only one way you can go. And and I think that, uh, you know, when we did the the next album, Alpha, uh, by that time, it wasn't, you know, it wasn't quite as well received. I mean, it still sold two, two, three million copies. You know, which is had had that been what would sell the first, you know, the first album, which ended up selling over 10 million, you know, um, 
if if it if it had been a more gradual rise, then I think that we'd have had a lot more longevity. But you know, as I say, it's all it's all hindsight, um, and I think that the fact that we had that opportunity, yeah, yeah, to come back, you know, in two thousand and five, two thousand and six. There was a feeling that there was a lot of unfinished business, and I think that when you know when we got together again, I started writing with John again. We still had that, you know, we had a great rapport. You know, John would come. You know, I, I live in Wales, and he he lived in Bournemouth. Uh, so we'd, we'd literally, I'd go down to his place, and we'd he'd still have the the old piano, you know, that we'd written Heat of the Moment on and Soul Survivor. And we crack the old piano out, and it would be the same thing, you know. He's got this idea, I've got that idea. We put them together, and then I'd go home and we'd have maybe a couple of songs in an afternoon, you know. And that's how how natural it was for us that um, uh, it, it was not a great effort to to put our music together and make it work. The the tracks that you were working on around the the time when he passed away. Um, we're heading toward another Asia album. Um, I understand. I mean, you can correct me if that's if that's wrong. Uh, is there work to be to be done on those that could end up with the possibility of it being released? Um, there's there's the formate, formative ideas there, but you know, unfortunately, because John was was quite Ill, you know was, was very ill at the time, we never really got to yeah yeah <coughs> to establish the top lines. You know that. Or, or uh, you know, the, a, a lot of lyrics that John um, w- would normally come up with. So they're very sketchy. But you know, I, I'm hoping that sometime I will be able to to mm. look at those sketches and maybe make something out of them. You know, that that, that John would have uh, possibly appreciated. But you know, as I say, it's it's a it's a difficult thing because I wouldn't want to throw something out there that that. Uh, a he wouldn't have liked or or, or would be you know uh, unfinished if you, if you like so um it, it's one of those things that's it, it it's there in my mind and and uh, you know I know all the bits and pieces that we had but whether or not I could actually craft something out of it I'm not sure uh, as you're here on this um really expansive box set. It's a great box set, um, which looks back over the course of his uh, career. I mean, we know that he was on the cusp, first off with that album Danger Money by by UK. Kolodnas quote at the time was, it's close, but no cigar. (laughs) Um, Then you go on and listen to you, you get to listen to the album Crossfire, which is in the box set, which is one of the uh, one of the first album that he did afterwards which I, I was really surprised. Obviously, I mean, yeah, there's so much music out there. You can't ever listen to everything. But when you, when you put that on, I thought, God, how come I never heard that before? Because it had all that sound of you know, Toto and you know, a little bit of Journey. And you listen to it and you think, hmm, this is Baby Asia. <laughs> this is, you know, this, it was a great album. And this box there is stuffed full of stuff yeah. like that. Yeah, because I think John was... He was just looking for something, you know, and 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 so a lot of that stuff is he's he's dipping his toe in the water, you know, because he, you know, as much as he he's you know was very proud of the King Crimson stuff that he did, he was looking for something I think that was maybe something more mainstream, something more 
uh, accessible, you know, because John, you know, he, he, he wanted to be a rock star, you know, and I think that, you know, just being, you know, King Crimson, it, it was not, it was not, you know, you were not necessarily front line, you know, progressive music doesn't really have that, you know, the guy in front of the stage giving it all that, you know, and I think that with John, he was there, you know, he's a great looking guy, he had uh, photogenic, you know, so he had the full, he had the full package, and, and I think that maybe, you know, that's what he was looking for, when the opportunity to do Asia came along, that was really, for him, that was the, the, the thing, you know, that was him, you know, that's what he'd been striving for. Just a few uh, words on yes. Uh, you've come back off what was a hugely successful tour. Now, I'm just going to read you a few things here. And these were the, the, the reviews. Uh, watching the band on the stage was like a time walk back to the 70s. The energy on stage was amazing to watch. Uh, yes offer a masterful musical interplay. Down's organ solos were dramatic. Uh, yes add to legacy. Um, what was it? A mesmerizing concert experience that will transport you and your awareness to a realm of musical brilliance. I mean, these were some of the quotes from some of the reviews that I saw. So how does it feel when you, after all the years that you've been in the business, that people are still turned on and tuned in to seeing you take to the stage every night? They can't get enough of it. Well, I think that, um, that live music something that, you know, it's never going to go away. And I think that uh, uh, whatever age you are, whatever music you're into, it's the event of going to see something live is, 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 is the excitement factor. You know, it's like, it's like going to watch a live football match, you know. It's a totally different atmosphere from watching it on the TV. So I think that, um, you know, it's something that, that people will always hopefully um, strive to see it. Particularly, I think, in, in the days now of, uh, of so much reality stuff on television and uh, um, a lot of manufactured music, I think that, uh, you know, the fact that people go, go out and they see people grappling with their instruments and, and making music together and, the, uh, you know, the, the camaraderie and the connection between all the musicians on stage, I think it's a very... Um, it's a very important thing, and I think people relate to that, and, and they they get off on it. And as I say, not just about seeing a band like Yes, but uh, you know, seeing any any kind of live music is is, is something that uh, hopefully will be around for many many decades to come. And so, the classic tales of Yes is the set going to differ for Europe to what you played over in the US? I think it will be largely the same. Uh, because when we put a set together like this one, which is, you know, it's a very, very, um, very different from the stuff that, that, you know, from previous set lists. So it takes a lot of, um, not just rehearsal, but uh, a lot of thought that goes into um, making it work as a show. And I think that the fact that we've got that show now pretty much nailed um, and we haven't been to Europe with it. I think that that's one thing that uh, I think, you know, the fans will probably want to see something different. And, and that's what we're throwing up. You know, we're, uh, you know, yes, has always been, certainly since I've been back in the band, 
we've really uh, challenged the, the set list. You know, we've gone through uh, a lot of the earlier albums, um, some of the much deeper tracks, uh, pulled those out that you know never been done before. So it's uh, it's it, it's good to keep it fresh. I think you know, I mean, some some bands go out and they play exactly the same set for years years on end, but uh, I think with with yes, I think we've we've definitely tried to dish up something different every time, and um, uh, and hopefully the fans will really respond to this uh, to this set, which we are, you know, as I say, we're we're looking forward to taking to Europe uh, and also um, into Japan in September. So we've got a yet another year lined up of 2024 of pretty much going, you know, everywhere that we we want to go. So it's uh, it's. It's a good time for the band, and, and of course we're we're working on another album as well now. We've got two, uh, you know, two recent albums that we've done, uh, the Quest and uh, Mirror to the Sky, which came out earlier this year. So there's a lot of um, there's a lot of activity in the US camp, and I think that that keeps us all fresh. You know, we've got obviously, you know, we sadly lost Alan last year, which was you know uh, another personal blow for me because um, you know I was very good friends with Alan and uh, you know, ironically he, he, him and John were born uh, two days apart so uh, again you know he's a guy from the north of England um, so and, you know it's just sad to lose people like that that, that you know I've had a close relationship with and uh, you know not just musically but, but people who were uh, you know, I consider it to be great friends as well. Uh, you mentioned the, the the new music there. H- how important is new music to you and the rest of the band? Now, as you said, Mirror in the Sky and The Quest, a couple of years before the 23rd studio uh, album, again, continued to be exceedingly well-received. Uh, one of the, the quotes, more aggressive, muscular sound, yes, returned to a golden era of uh, creativity. So people clearly, you know, do take to the new music. How is it with you? How important is creating new well, music? Well, I think it keeps, it keeps everyone fresh. You know, I think that, if you if you look at a you know, some bands that just literally they're, they're almost sort of tribute acts within themselves because they they um, they just want to play the hits and there's nothing wrong with that you know a band like Foreigner for instance don't even attempt to write any new music you know they just go out and they play you know however many hits they've had a gazillion yeah, yeah. gazillion hits you know um, that's okay for them but I, I think that. <laughs> <laughs> I think for us, you know, it's um, it, it's something that keeps us occupied. It keeps the momentum going. It keeps, I think, I think it keeps the fans interested as well because I, I don't think that, you know, obviously we play roundabout every show and you know the fans will turn around and go, you know, I've, I've heard roundabout five hundred times, you know, live. Um, but you know, we. we <laughs> It's expected that we do something like that, and that's, there's nothing wrong with that. But you know, to put in a couple of songs from you know new material, I don't think. I think it keeps it keeps it fresh, it keeps it relevant, it keeps it current, uh, and so that's the reason why we do it. And I think that we get off on it. You know, if you're a composer and you you enjoy writing music, I think you, you know you you're not just going to stop and say, well, 
you know, I'm, I'm gonna I'm gonna play video kill the radio star for the rest of my life, and that's it. You know, um, I just wanna, <laughs> you know, you wanna get on and do uh, do new stuff, and I think that's all part of being a creative musician. But oh, by the way, I mean, you've talked about obviously the you know, yes and and Asia and everything. Did the thought ever cross your mind to to go back and revisit the the uh, the Buggles era, even if it was just for fun? Well, you know, um, have you have you ever thought about that? I mean, I know the two of you are still in contact. Yeah, we still we're still in contact. I think uh, if the time ever comes, I mean, Trevor's always always crazy busy, you know, doing various productions and things like that. So um, uh, the chances of us getting a big window are fairly. Um, Fairly unlikely, but you know, when I speak to him, we never discount the possibility of going out and doing a few shows here and there, or, or what you know, we've got a couple of tracks that unreleased tracks that we've worked on over the years. Um, so yeah, I mean, I, I don't think it's 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 never off the table, put it that way. And and I think that you know, Trev's had a, a, an amazing career, as you know, as a producer, uh, and you know, we've we've always got, I've always got, I think, a soft spot for each other because, you know, that I know how hard we work putting that whole, the buggers together, and and we were a couple of unknown guys, you know, from, yeah. from the north of England. So, um, you know, you never really forget that connection, and and so, uh, you know, and I think that when Trevor wrote his book, you know, he he made mention of that that, you know, once. We, we were we were sort of nobodies, if you like, and then all of a sudden we we managed to get off on these incredible careers. And certainly, you know, my own career, uh, I, I I give a lot of credit to all that work with Trevor. And I think he feels the same way to me that that we we fed off each other, and, and it was you know we we made a success out of out of something that uh, uh, went on to do two completely different careers, but at the same time. You know, we were successful outside of what we started with the Buggles. Last question, then. You've had this amazing career. I mean, yeah, what you've achieved, you maybe wouldn't have thought in your wildest of dreams you would have, you would have got close to. Is there anything left that you would like to achieve uh, that you haven't done before? Something that you think, yeah, I, I'd love to work with them or... I just want to do that, and that's the one thing. Or have you done it all? Well, I think you never, you never um, turn your back on the fact that there might be one more in you. You know, uh, what's you know another another hit record um, <laughs> or something like that. You know, that that never really leaves you. And you know, I don't actually write necessarily to try and gain any commercial recognition because. You know, I've done that, and I've been there, and I've got the, you know, I've got the T-shirt on that. So I don't feel that I need to strive, but at the same time, you know, for for sort of more recognition or whatever. But at the same time, I think that uh, it's always down to, you know, getting satisfaction out of making music, and, and that's something that, uh, you know, whoever it might be, whoever I might work with. As long as it's it's a satisfying thing, and you come home after working on a on a track, or or you know whether you've recorded some parts, if you come out at the end of the day and you think, wow, you know, 
I've really I achieved something there, you know. I, I, or I put a great keyboard part on something, or or you know, a, a nice melody came up, you know, any anything like that. I think that's all part part and parcel of. I don't really want to strive to do anything other than to continue to get that buzz, you know, when you come out out the studio and you you're on a high because you, you whether as I say, whether or not it achieves commercial recognition is not really relevant because. If you've got the buzz out of it, then, you know, someone else is, is probably going to get the buzz out of it as well. And I think, you know, w when I've been working with, with Chris Braid on the Downs Braid Association stuff, it's, it's, it's very yes. um, mm -hmm. rewarding. Uh, and it's almost in a way that it was like with John when I was doing the Icon stuff. Uh, you know, we, we were just really writing for ourselves and, and, uh, and hopefully other people will, will get off of that, as they did. You know, other people found found great solace in some of the materials, found excitement in the material. So I think that, um, you know, as John always used to say uh, when he was asked, what's it like to be writing? He'd say, well, that's what we do. You know, we're musicians. That's that's what we do. We, we, we make music, you know. And that's, uh, that's just about... As, as simple as I can make it.
always a great pleasure to talk to Jeff Dance. And the John Wesson box set is out now. It is called An Extraordinary Life. And if you were a fan of Asia and never really paid too much attention to the final four albums that they did, when the original members all got back together again, then do go and investigate because there is some really great music on there. And that brings us neatly along to Texas Scratch. Now, this is the project that few thought would see the light of day as it sat on the shelf for, what, 13 years. But it is finally out. So I spoke to Jim Sula earlier on this week about the project's beginnings, if there is potential for a future or a follow-up or whatever. And, of course, we'll look back at his uh, solo career with Monkey Beat and with George Thorogood. Here's a taste, though of what Texas Scratch is all about.
so let's start with the fact, Olga, from where you were born and brought up, because you were born in Dallas, and, and your journey from there to here began with the first band that you ever listened to, which, like many people, was the Beatles. That's right. Um, their their reach was far from Liverpool to East Dallas. I just, you know, I, I, I don't know. It's just when I saw it, it was just instantly, you know, it's like the world went from black and white to color instantly. Now, tell me, you got your first guitar when you were 14 years of age, the $50 Harmony, which you, which you still have, I believe. Yeah, it's actually sitting in the corner right now. Yeah, it was a it was an exceedingly cheap guitar when it was made, and then by the time uh, it was get, uh, my father purchased the guitar for me, and it it was uh, already you know it was I think he paid fifty dollars for it, which was a lot of money at that time, I guess. And um, yeah, it's a it, it's not a very good guitar, but it's got a special sound, and it was like it just won't stay in tune. And I I rarely play it. I've recorded with it a few times but it was difficult to even get through a take without having it slip out of tune so <laughs> it's more of a sentimental attachment than an actual tool in the toolbox these days so were you leaning on your your parents music catalog as well when you were we growing up was it a musical household well not probably compared to some but that we didn't you know my my father enjoyed dixieland jazz and jazz and at that time, groups like Herb Albert and the Tijuana Brass, Al Hurt, Pete Fountain, that sort of thing is what he listened to, uh, which I liked. You know, In fact, the, the first place I ever heard live music, other than like going to a church when I was a kid, was at Preservation Hall in New Orleans. My dad took me in there, and they had a lot some old-timers in there that would play When the Saints Go Marching In. And yeah, yeah rag and stuff like that so it was just like going into a secret world at that age you know when you're i couldn't have been more than nine or ten years old but I, it was just uh intoxicating your your influences were were quite varied we're talking about that picture and that great picture in the background of, of sun house there you've got freddie king uh, Leonard Skinner and the Ormonds, which you would expect. But you also had a harder edge as well to what you were listening to. There was ACDC for a start. So Rory, Rory Gallagher was uh, mentioned ZZ Top. So there was a blend of rock and blues for you. Oh, oh yeah. I mean, I just, you know, I, I didn't make distinctions. If I liked it, I just liked it. But it, I did tend to gravitate more to the blues-based sounds uh, initially um, and got into to straight blues like Sunhouse through people like the Allman Brothers or the Rolling Stones because they covered a lot of these old songs. I think the first time I ever heard the name Sunhouse was in a Leonard Skinner song called Swamp Music. Yeah, yeah. Uh, I didn't, it was at the time, but I, I, I did learn. And, um, yeah, so, I mean, I've always just, I, I, I've liked players who tend to take things from all, you know, from, from all sources. There was a guy in, in uh, Texas called Bugs Henderson, a guitar player. He was a big influence on me when I was young. 
he, he kind of was a guitar hero. He didn't have the high profile that Johnny Winter or Stevie Ray Vaughan did later, but he, all the musicians knew him and respected him. And, you know, if you were a hotshot guitar player on tour and you came to town, he would come out and sit in with you. Like he, he did that with Roy Buchanan. And, and, um, so he was a big influence on me just the way he, he was much like Rory Gallagher. He wouldn't play that industry game. He wouldn't get a skinny lead singer with tight pants and, and a shag haircut, which was kind of the template at the time. So I always admired that, you know, they just stayed true to their, to their own inspirations and, you know, whatever initially got them into it. Cause it's so easy to get distracted. So was your mind made up very early that music was going to be where it was at for you? And that, you know, the moment that you, you left school or education, or whatever, that is the road you were going down. I, I, I'd like to say yes, but I was, it, I loved it. I just, I didn't have it together at the time. I was pretty scattered. I was, you know, going through a lot. I was typical. I don't know how typical it is, but I was a, late teens I was you know I was just into cars and girls and <laughs> you know taking drugs and just raising hell and trying to live that life I really had that part of it down before I had the the music down even though I was playing I just didn't know how to really break in so I just I got married and had, we had a daughter my wife and I and I had a series of jobs and when I was about 25 that that fell apart and my marriage fell apart and I decided that was sort of my decision. I, if I'm going to do this, I, I'd better do it now. So I got kind of a late start in that regard. You made up ground up pretty quick, didn't you, with Monkey Bee in, what, 91, getting it together, 92, the recordings and the first album in, in 93. So it's three decades now, 30 years of, uh, of music that you can look back on. Yeah, and it's, <clears throat> that, that blows my mind because... I don't know. Time, time is, I don't want to get all cosmic because I'm not really <laughs> good. Time is linear, but it's not. It's almost like sometimes something that was 30 or 40 or 50 years ago can seem like you just walked out of the next room and, you know, and in other times it can feel like, man, I, you can't even perceive how far back it is. But I, I knew it was something I loved and, and I wanted to do if, if I could figure out how to break in. So I just got out and worked hard and, and tried to, to get out of, of Dallas. And I, you know, I had some breaks, but I was prepared when those breaks occurred. So, um, so you had this chance meeting, uh, didn't you, with, with George Thurgood in that bar in, in Memphis, and he recommended... Uh, Terry Manning, the the producer, who had a real A list of uh, Cleon Teller, Aretha Franklin, ZZ Top, he recommended them. But did you think that he would get back to you and say, "Hey, yeah, you know, I want to, uh, I want to work with you"? And what was it well, like I, when he did get back to you? Well, I was I was excited, but I was terrified because I knew, you know, <laughs> I had to produce something. I just remember like being like really. Uh, I was almost physically sick from it because it, it was, uh, I, I just didn't want to flop. I didn't, I didn't want to go in and, you know, 
uh, what's what? There's a term for that imposter syndrome. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> right. Liver. So I, I remember going in the studio, and he had he had a picture of Robert Johnson and uh, and a picture of Angus Young in the studio, and he had Albert King's old guitar case, and I, and I, I felt at that moment I felt like this is going to be okay. I mean, I, I was so intimidated by his resume, but he was great, and it was a wonderful experience. And he's a, obviously a fantastic producer. He's he was engineering that uh, Led Zeppelin song "Since I've Been Loving You" with the squeaky bass drum yeah, pedal. Yeah. <laughs> I'm sure you know that story. <laughs> so tell me, you ended up then opening for for George Thorogood. On on tour, so, I mean things happen pretty quickly. You've had you've had the production with Terry, and then you were on the road. I mean this, uh, I mean this must have been a great time for you. It was. I, I was still you know blown away that it was happening. It was everything was happening fast, and you know just a couple of years before, I was happy to get a, a you know Wednesday night at the Greenville Bar and Grill, and then the next thing you know we were in theaters and arenas, hockey rinks, and you know, touring all over Canada and the U S and it, but when the album came out, my album, uh, first album, then we started going to Europe and playing and yeah, it was great. You know, I was, uh, uh, yeah, I worked really hard. The whole band worked really hard. So coming more up to date, how did the gathering for what Texas scratch came, uh, to be? How did it come about? What were you What were you doing? I mean, it's 13 years ago. There's Buddy, Jeff, Vinny, uh, there's even Roger Earl uh, in there who had an involvement along with others. So how did it come about? Were you, you just sat around a studio thinking, let's get together and do something? No, not at all. There was a, there was a guy from uh, Long Island, New York City, named Arnie Goodman. He, he initiated this project. He, he had the, the means and I'm not sure how to put this, but he, he had some connections and the idea was to have us all convene. He put the lineup together. We would all convene in New Jersey, which is like 1500 miles from Texas um, to record this album. And, and we all said, sure, we'd love it. It sounds like a great idea. It's, you know, I'm, I'm all up for new things and working with talented people. So that was great. And we all, came in individually armed with our own songs and we learned everything and taught everybody else's songs on the spot, worked the arrangements up on the spot and recorded it like four or five days. And, uh, it was mixed and mastered after I had gone home, but that's how it started. It was, uh, it was a third party that brought us all together. It's quite rare, isn't it? Because there were no rehearsals and you literally, as you said, just went in, laid it down and it took four days to do. And the fact that you're coming in with all but one song being an original. And when you look back throughout the course of, of, of history and you look at interviews with great musicians and whatever, when they look back on their greatest musical moments, they always look to times like these where there wasn't years to do it. It was done in a day. It was done somewhere a million miles away from everywhere. And it just mm -hmm. all came together, which is pretty much yeah, the story here. 
Right. It's, 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 it's really easy to overthink everything. There's so many rabbit holes you can go down. And sometimes the first thought is the best thought. And sometimes the best songs are recorded on poor equipment with cheap instruments. Um, the, the song may speed up or slow down, you know, but there's still great songs. I think there's too much polish on a lot of things today. Um, but I think that initial impulse is, is, is what you want to capture. Uh, the the place needs a, a bit of mention, doesn't it? You're in New Jersey, the Showpiece Studios, which is located at the back of a building which housed something called the Showcase Go-Go Lounge, where they used to bus in Russian dancers every day. Exactly. It was some like, yeah, it was a Russian mob thing, very oppressive and depressing vibe in there. I did go in there and had a beer once, but it was... Uh, it, you know, it was just a real downer. It was like these, everybody looked miserable. So I was like, I, I'm not digging this. So what were your thoughts then when the completed projects uh, dropped on your doorstep or wherever it did and you, you sat and listened to it for the first time? Because I assume as you'd all gone home, all the mastering and the engineering process was done afterwards. So you weren't all together when you heard it at the same time. So what was it like? What did you think initially, your initial reaction? Oh, I was pleased with it. I mean, the, pro the whole process was uh, enjoyable and everybody's great to work with. Everybody was seasoned and knew, knew, the, knew how to uh, proceed and, if, and you know, work efficiently and respectfully. And um, so, but I, I was pleased, but you, you must remember this was completed in October of 2009. So, but I had, I was hearing uh, stuff, you know, it wasn't too long after that. And I, I, I had, I've had it here, you know, I've had the recording here unreleased for some time and just, you know, I wasn't thinking about it. I'd kind of given up on it until I guess early this summer, I'm sitting in a restaurant scrolling through my Instagram feed and I see that the album has been released digitally which was a shock to me and everybody else involved because uh, at that point none of us had been contacted about it which is a unique marketing strategy but <laughs> incredible but, so you had yeah. no idea that this had actually come out no but i, I was aware that the you know the physical product came out when that was released yeah uh, that was a few months later and uh yeah, I was shocked, uh, pleasantly surprised. But, you know, I, I tried to push for this thing to be released for many years. And I can't really tell you why, because I don't know it wasn't released. I think it was just uh, that the, the first situation where it was planned to be released fell through or something happened there. And then it was shopped and then just sat on the shelf because I I'm not, you know, I can't speak for those parties that were handling all that because I just don't have that information. And yeah, yeah. I, I really don't try to uh, speculate on it. Uh, you actually did a few festival gigs together as well, didn't you? After the recording process had been done. So, I mean, you, how, you're out there performing your life. How, how did it feel to actually play it in the uh, live environment? And what was the reaction like? It was a lot of fun. I mean, you know, I really love these songs and they were, and I love playing with Buddy and, you know, I, I don't think Vince was there. I'm not sure what was going on, why he wasn't there, but, um, 
it went well. We did two festivals in Canada, one in uh, London, Ontario, and the other was in Windsor, which is right on the U.S. border across from Detroit. And it went well, but I think that was in 2010 or 11. Yeah, yeah. So it's been a minute, yeah. The, the beauty of the album is that it has this timeless blues, rock, soul feel. So there's no dating to it. I mean, it, it could be released any time, uh, really. Uh, but it's just a great-sounding album. Yeah, I, I really like the production on it, and that was uh, Ben Elliott, who the set, who owned the studio, Showplace Studios in Dover, New Jersey, who sadly passed away. Uh, maybe a couple of years ago, as well as the bass player on the project, Nathaniel Peterson. So, I mean, that's how long this thing sat on the shelf. Two of the parties involved had, had passed away, sadly. But, um, yeah, but that is a shame. we took our, a lot of the influences, I would say mainly were from like the stuff Buddy and I grew up on here in Texas, like ZZ Top, who... <clears throat> was huge in Texas that, you know, they could sell as many tickets as the, you know, the stones or just about anybody. They were so big here. And I'm talking pre eliminator before yeah, yeah. the beards, synthesizers, the first four or five albums were hugely influential on buddy. And I, uh, as far as uh, the material, the approach, the tones, we were in love with Billy Gibbons, guitar tones. And again, that, all that stuff was produced by Terry Mann. Yeah, Rio Grande Mud. Fabulous, fabulous. Yep. So tell me, what is next with this with this project? Are there any thoughts that you could pull together uh, and record something else again? I mean, I'm, I'm assuming that you've spoken to those that are still around and they clearly have the same view as you, which is, Wow, this is this is a great album. We could have done we could have done four more in the time we've waited for this. So, what is the plan? Well, the, I, we would love to do something else. Um, we're we're just kind of in that tunnel right now of promotion, and um, we're doing some shows. Uh, there is a geographical consideration because Buddy and I live about thirty or forty miles apart. But our drummer, Jeff Simon, lives in the Philadelphia area, which is near New Jersey, 1,500 or so miles away. And Vince Converse, the other guitar player, the third player, lives in Denver, which is like 14 hours by car from where Buddy and I live. So right now, Buddy and I are just doing some uh, gigs in the North Texas area to promote it. And But we're looking into 2024 to do some festival dates and theater stuff. We'd love to come to the UK. I know Buddy has a good fan base there uh, as a result of his tenure with John Mayall and the Blues Breakers. Absolutely, yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah, Buddy's one of those players where sometimes I just, like, stand there. I stop playing and watch because I'm so impressed by what he's doing. <laughs> That was Jim Sula talking to me from his home in Texas just a couple of days ago. Texas Scratch is available to buy now, and it is good too. And now to round things off, something festive, I think, from Thunder. They've got a new live album out. It's called A Black Country Christmas. It was recorded at KK Steel Mill back in 2021. And uh, to 
introduce it, here's a special message from Danny Bowes. These shows took place in uh, December 2021, just about the same time as the uh, second round of COVID misery kicked in. Loads of people were asking us to cancel the shows, but I'm glad we didn't because those were there absolutely loved it and the shows were fantastic, as evidenced by this CD. After the shows, when we listened to the recordings, they sounded dreadful. Not the band, the band were great. It was just the recording sounded terrible. Just a technical thing gone wrong there. Might have been the engineer drunk, I don't know. But all I can tell you is by the miracle of modern technology, we managed to resurrect them and they sound great now. So, all good. You sure? <laughs> okay. Here's an old one, you know this. Last night they finished the song for me, so see what you can do. Once in a while I drift in time To a place in my memory That it still hurts to find I was taking on the world With a see-through smile But dying on the inside All the while I was Dying on the inside all the while Like a martyr that don't want sympathy I locked away my feelings Threw away the key It was gonna take a miracle to pierce my pride Tower of strength to try when you love him, wash right over me like the tide. And now I believe in love, I believe in love, I believe in love, I believe in love. You're the reason why I came. Cause when I look at myself. In the mirror, I see a better man, a better man. Yes, it's hard finding words that can say how I feel about you. I don't care if it sounds like another old cliche, but I can't stand a thought.
Were any of you here last night? Do you think that was better or worse than last night? You think no? I think it was. I think that was better. Give yourselves a round of applause. Save me a job, I love that. <laughs>